0: Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. And the title of my message today is, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who you're talking to? Has anybody ever, have you ever uh, had the privilege of getting to watch a fight between people and someone pulled out this phrase in the middle of the fight? Like where two people are arguing and suddenly somebody says, they sort of like, they don't know what else to say and they're getting frustrated because there's something they want or something that's not happening that they think should happen. And finally they just kind of puff up their chest and they're like, do you know who you're talking to? And then everyone stops and sort of looks over there. And this is what everyone's thinking if you're watching that situation. We do know who that person's talking to, looks like a real jerk. Because typically that doesn't go well. I, I, maybe you have. I have never seen someone pull out this phrase in an angry tone to sort of get their way and it go really well. And everybody walk away being like, that was a great exchange. I feel like we really came out understanding each other and moving forward. Like that was, that was incredible. I feel like there's this, often there's this air of like condescension or entitlement when this phrase is said that just sort of makes us feel gross. Uh, whether we're the one that's being told this, whether we're the one that is watching it get said to someone else, it, it, it looks like someone is trying to essentially convince someone else that they ought to get special treatment or they ought to get their way or they ought to be the exception to whatever rule is being laid down in front of them because they are someone Special. When I think about this phrase and someone using it, I think about just the the, the quintessential sort of Christian filter to apply to every act of behavior in life. Right? It's like, what would Jesus do? Right? And can you imagine Jesus pulling out this phrase to someone, being like, "I'm sorry, you can't come in. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not going to work." And him being like, "Do you know who you're talking to? Yeah, I'm Jesus." and just pushing his way through. It's hard for me to picture. I can't imagine someone saying it. And maybe you can't imagine yourself ever saying this. I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt and, 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 and envision that you have never actually said this phrase before. But here is what I will wager. You've wanted to. You've wanted to, right? You've had a moment where somebody you felt like across from you was being a little bit disrespectful to you. They, they didn't quite understand, like, you know, how they should be talking to you and what they should be saying to you. And you were getting really annoyed by, like, the, the, the situation and the interaction. And, man, you were, it was boiling up inside of you. And you wanted to say it, but you've seen too many other people say it. And you know that it doesn't go well. You wanted to put that person in their place so quick. But hopefully you didn't. Um, Maybe you did. And if so, please tell me that story on the plaza. I would love to include you in the next service. (laughs) And I think the implication behind this phrase, and part of the reason that we want to say it, part of the reason that, that someone who does say it says it, is what they're really trying to say is like, if you really knew me, you would talk to and treat me differently. If you really knew me, you would talk to and treat me differently. It's that sort of like, it's that place where we feel trapped, and we don't feel seen or understood, and it's not working, and we don't know how to, to sort of explain or demonstrate who we really are, and we just, we just, in frustration, in anger, we just sort of throw this out there. I wonder if you've ever walked away from an interaction with someone and Then after you left, you realized who you were talking to. And then you rethought and probably regretted some of what you just said. Because as you were having the conversation, you didn't know who it was, right? And then later someone was like, did you know who that is? And you're like, what? And instantly the, the color rushed out of your face and you felt sick to your stomach. You're like, what? He's the CEO? Oh my gosh, I'm gonna lose my job, right? Like that was my crush's mom, oh no, it's over between us, right? That was our professor, the one I just told for the last half hour that class was stupid and everything that they said was like, she's the one who gets to decide who gets a raise. Well, it's not gonna be me now because I didn't realize that when I was talking about how horrible every policy in this organization is. That was a mistake. And I wonder like, why do these situations panic us? I think it's because we sort of intuitively know that our perception of a person frames our interactions with that person, right? So we talk to people based on who it is we think we're talking to. Now, I know some of you are thinking like, not me. I talk to and treat everyone the same. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're lying to yourself and probably some other people. Um, And I think you shouldn't talk to everyone the same and treat everyone the same. Like, you don't say the same things the same way to the administrative assistant in your office that you do in the privacy of your bedroom with your wife. Hopefully you don't. Let me just tell you right now, if you are, your wife is under the impression that you are not. That should probably be a conversation you have ASAP. ASAP right? Like criticism from some random troll on social media lands differently than a critique from your long-term best friend, right? It feels differently. You receive it differently. You're you're, you're less likely to to take seriously investment advice from your drunk, broke cousin than you would a very successful and wealthy broker, right? Like we, we respond differently to different people, And we do it for different reasons. We do it based on their reputation, their track record, their expertise, and also your relationship and experiences and interactions with them. And the point is, we approach every conversation we have with an idea of who it is we're talking to, whether that is an accurate idea or not. And sometimes it is. Sometimes we are right, sometimes we're wrong. Often, we don't even know we're doing this. Sometimes the assumptions we're bringing to the table about the person that we're talking to, we don't even realize our assumptions that we're making in the conversation. Ever been about to have a big conversation with someone and you're on your way there, and as you're going there, whether you're driving or walking down the hallway, you find yourself sort of playing out different scenarios of how that conversation is probably going to go based on who you assume that person is. And What's weird is that we almost all talk to ourselves in this way, right? We're like, I'm going to say this, and then they're probably going to say that, right? How do we think we know what they're probably going to say, right? We have an idea of who they are, and we're using that to sort of echo their voice to us inside of our head. And oftentimes, this, this brings us to certain conclusions about how that's going to go down, which is why some of us, our stomach gets churning and churning and churning, right? Right? We're like, Phew. if I tell my mom we are not coming for Christmas this year, oh, she is going to freak out, especially find, when she finds out where we're actually going. Um, that is not going to be good. I'm not good for, looking forward to this conversation. If I ask my boss for a raise, which I need, like I know how it's going to go. He's just going to remind me of that mistake I made last quarter that kind of cost the company some money, and it was an honest mistake, but he's going to remind me of that and just be like, you're lucky to even have a job so I don't even wanna bring it up because I know how it's gonna go. I mean, if I admit to my husband how much I actually spent (laughs) on that trip, it is gonna, he won't be my husband anymore is basically how it's probably gonna go. And I think in a lot of these sort of situations, we haven't even had the conversation yet, but we feel like we have. Has this ever happened to you? Where you feel emotionally like you've already had the interaction because of how many times you played it out in your mind because we've been rehearsing what we think they're gonna say and when we finally come down to the moment where we're face-to-face with that person, where we're actually gonna have the conversation, our assumptions change what we say and what they what we hear and how we respond and oftentimes the entire outcome of the interaction. You ever come into a conversation the wrong way based on your assumptions, and you set off a fight that wouldn't have existed had you not come in with those incorrect assumptions? I get that you're super spiritual, more so than me, and so you don't want to admit it, but I have too many times to count (laughs) an embarrassingly high ratio. And like, why, why does this happen? Why do we end up like bringing things in, and why does that sort of turn the conversation upside down and sometimes damage the interaction we have? Because our perception of a person frames our interactions with that person. Like everything that we think and feel and are telling ourselves and rehearsing, going into the conversation, changes the conversation and how we feel about it. And the reason I bring this up today is that, I've realized that this isn't just true about our conversations with other people. This is true about our conversations with God. Because in reality, what you think about God changes the way you talk to God and how you interpret what you hear from God. And some of us have never really thought about this before. We're like God is just sort of generic God, right? Like I'm sure that like he just, it's fine, right? And we've never really thought about how we're sort of processing our relationship with God, how we're thinking about who God is, um, who we are going to when we have this conversation. Some of us have never actually analyzed how the assumptions we've made about God are changing the conversations we're having with God. And the reason this is a problem is because some of our assumptions are incorrect, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, it is full of very specific and sometimes very strict instructions that God gives his people. And like us, you know, because they're humans, they didn't always like being told what to do, especially when there wasn't like a detailed explanation of why am I supposed to do that. Maybe you thought this was just like a weird disease your kids have. Everyone has always been this way. When someone's like, this is what I need you to do, people are like, Why, right? And here's the issue with this. God didn't always tell these people why. What he often did instead was paint a clearer picture of who was asking. There's one passage in particular where God is about to give people a series of of laws and rules. And some of the stuff is very elaborate and specific. And it's stuff that is ultimately gonna be good for these people, but it's not gonna feel good up front but first, before God does all of this, he says something about who he is. It's found in Exodus chapter 34, verse six. Before he tells them what to do, he tells them who he is. And he starts by saying, I am Yahweh, the Lord the God of compassion and mercy, I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren, the entire families affected, into the third and fourth generations." Now, what you should know about this that our Bible class teacher would tell you if you were in his class is that there's a context to what's being said here. In fact, these statements become known as the 13 attributes of God. They become the foundation of the Jewish faith and how they view God and every interaction they have with God, so much so that it actually becomes customary to recite these two verses, these 13 statements before these people went into the temple to worship, study, or sacrifice. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Essentially, what we know about this passage, these sentences, these statements, is that before attempting to talk to or hear from God, these people would begin by reminding themselves of who God is. Why? Because it's easy to forget. In fact, these statements are echoed over and over again all throughout Scripture, in Psalms, in the Old Testament passages, in interactions that people have, in private moments with God, in public ceremonies, in the Old and New Testament, over and over and over again, these people reminding themselves of who it is they're dealing with. And so the big question is, what do these things even mean? I mean, if someone is describing themselves in certain terms, it would be helpful to know what those terms actually mean. So I'm gonna just break down what these words mean. Like, what does God say, what does God mean when he says these things about himself? Um, I I wanna just start with the the first few phrases that he uses, Yahweh, the Lord, uh, compassion, and mercy. What do these things mean biblically? Like, what does God mean when he says these things? Yahweh, the Lord, uh, essentially, these two titles mean the one being who is over, above, and in charge of everything. That's, that's, sort of a, that's sort of a power move to come out with this one, right? I am the one being who is over, above, and in charge of everything. FYI, just starting the conversation this way. Compassion which is the the second marker that God gives to identify who he is, to show compassion is to consider and care about the feelings and experiences of others. This was a revolutionary concept to people at this time in history when these words were first spoken. Like, God didn't care about people. That wasn't the way they thought. And he's like, I mean, other gods you may have heard of, other people's version of God, a skewed picture of God, but me, the actual one true God, actually care and consider very deeply the feelings and experiences of others. And then God is merciful, right? Mercy is acting to lessen the pain and suffering of others, even if they brought it on themselves, which I'm really grateful for. Because if I'm honest, most of the pain and suffering I've experienced in my life, I have brought on myself. Now, let's be real. I blamed other people. But if I'm honest, I I actually, a lot of it I brought on myself. I think it's interesting that before God tells us anything that he wants us to do, and he's declaring who he is, that these are the first things he wants us to know about him that he is over and above everything, that he is compassionate to his core, that he considers and cares about the feelings and experiences of others, including you specifically, and that he's merciful, that he is committed to acting to lessen the pain and suffering of people, including you, even if you brought it upon yourself, that at his core, these are the things that defines him. He's telling us that he wants us to filter everything that he says and does through this lens. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, right? He goes on to say that you know he's slow in anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. So what do these things mean? To be slow to anger means that you are patient, you're level-headed, and even keeled. Now, for some of you, this is the opposite image of God that you were painted all growing up, right? That God was angry, he was mad, he was petty. This is not the picture that he paints of himself. Unfailing love is essentially an unrelenting uh, ability to carry out acts of kindness and goodness towards other people. So no matter what they do and no matter what happens and no matter how long the relationship is going and no matter like if they're not extending love back to you, that un- unending or unfailing love is this ability to consistently give kindness and goodness and kindness and goodness even when that is not what is coming back your direction. It really does take God to be able to do that because we all have our limits, we're like, and you're cut off. <laughs> and God's like, not me, it's unfailing. And that God declares that he's faithful. And to be faithful means that you are stable, reliable, and full of integrity. If there is anything that we're looking for in our current culture, isn't it faithfulness, stability, reliability, integrity, integrity, We we don't know who we can trust or what we can trust or what we can rely on. And God is like, just so you know, this is the core of my personality. God goes on from here to say that he lavishes um, unfailing love to a thousand generations, that he forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. In other words, God's heart toward us is that even when we mess up, intentionally or not, that he still looks for ways to show us kindness and goodness. And when we hear all these first things of this passage, we love it. We're like, this is awesome. This is the kind of God I want to believe in, even if there are moments where I'm suspicious that that's maybe not who he is. And then he says this, which sort of sometimes throws us off a little bit. He goes on to say, but some of you are like, I knew it. Never mind. But I, I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generations. And maybe this is the deal breaker for you. You're just like, "Mm, I don't know. I mean, I got to be honest. I'm trying here. I'm really trying to come with you. But like, it just sounds really petty and angry to me. When I read this statement, when I hear this statement, when I envision someone who carries out and says, this is a core of the way I work and function. But I gotta tell you, um, this is not God vengefully threatening us. This is him explaining that wrongdoing always has a ripple effect. Like that no one ever entirely gets away with anything because every single one of our habits has consequences. And this isn't God talking about isolated incidents, right? Right? Oh, I caught you lying today. You've never done it before, but you're done, and I will curse your grandchildren. <laughs> Sometimes it's like the skewed picture we get of this. This is not what God is referencing here in this passage. He's talking about repetitive actions and long-term ways of thinking and being. I think it's really likely that what God is talking about here are a couple of, uh, a couple of, of items that, that science has now identified in this way. I think he's talking a lot about uh, the two ways that, that humans pick things up and carry things on. Uh, behavioral modeling and biological inheritance. So let me talk to you about what these things are because this is what I think God is talking about here. Behavioral modeling is essentially the human tendency to learn by observing and mimicking others. Right, So what this means is that this is just the way that you were made, the way God made you, that we pick up on and mirror the traits of the people around us. Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we do it unintentionally and completely subconsciously. You ever had a moment where you were saying a certain phrase a lot? You didn't even realize you were saying it, and someone's like, you're saying it just like this person. You're like, what? No, I'm not. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, I am. You've picked up somebody's laugh. You've picked up somebody's catchphrase. Like even to the smallest details of, we tend to mirror each other. If you're sitting across from someone and they oppose their body in a specific way, eventually you start doing the exact same thing. You're not even aware of it. This is how much we mimic and model one another. In other words, we pick up most of our behavioral cues and most of our behavioral habits from what we see from the people around us. And now what we see is expansive, right? Because we can see almost everyone in the world through the internet. So it just depends on what you're watching most often. Then there's biological inheritance, right? Which is the passing down of genetic traits, patterns, and tendencies. So the genetics that we receive from our parents and our grandparents predispose us to certain behaviors and conditions that are set off by certain actions and environments. And these traits... They determine how receptive we are to everything from certain types of cancer to high blood pressure to anxiety and a quick temper. This is why when you go to the doctor, they take a family history because of biological inheritance, right? Any any history of high blood pressure in your family, any history of cancer in your family of origin, right? They're trying to determine the likelihood that you have the markers in your DNA for certain things because it makes it more probable that something is gonna happen down the road for you. Now, here's what I find truly fascinating. You could literally Google this and come up with this. It's sitting right on the surface of scientific research. Scientific research has demonstrated very clearly that traits and tendencies can imprint on and impact us up to the third and fourth generation. Does that sound familiar? That God is like, the, the 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 different things that you find yourself mixed up in, that you give yourself over to, that you practice the patterns of thinking and being and behaving that these things are going to be laid on your children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. And now scientists come along thousands of years later and are like, FYI, if you pick up a bad habit, a certain way of thinking, if you get caught up in a particular addiction, just so you know, you are likely to pass that down to your children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. Not because someone is spiting you, but because this is the way in which you are made. This makes sense to me. Like, think about this. If you have like a genetic tendency towards something in your family and that thing is being modeled for you every single day of your life, of course that destructive pattern is gonna repeat over and over and over again, generation after generation. And so what God is actually saying here in this last part of this verse is that when I tell you something isn't a good idea, it's you know because it's going to have a negative effect and on more than just you. I'm looking at the big picture, your friends and family extending to generations in the future. A destiny I can see but you can't because I have a different perspective. Now maybe you're thinking Okay, I get that, but like, it still sounds kind of (laughs) harsh. I mean, like, one, couldn't God have made us differently? I mean, one horrible habit infecting four generations? I mean, God's math just kind of feels unfair. And here's what I'll tell you, it is. God's math is unfair, but not in the way you think. It's actually skewed in your favor. Did you notice how far... This passage says that God's unfailing love extends a thousand generations. Now, I get, maybe you're not good at math. I'm not either, but I know enough to know a thousand is more than four. God was like, here, here's the reality. There is a consequence. There's a ripple effect to your wrongdoing and you're gonna to have to deal with that. It's gonna be laid on your children and grandchildren. I also want you to know that all of these things I said before I said that are even truer than that. I wanna bless you. I wanna free you. I wanna push you forward. I wanna break you away from the patterns that seek to curse you because I love you. And the good things that I'm gonna bring into your life, they don't end after four generations, they echo again and again and again and again and again and again and again. So this is how God introduces himself. Pretty powerful introduction. And his people start repeating it to themselves every time they enter the temple. It's as if they're reminding themselves, okay, whatever God says to me today through his word or through his spirit, this is where it's coming from. And so if I start to assume that maybe God is telling me something or asking something of me because he's trying to control or manipulate me or he's trying to keep me from enjoying my life, then what that means is I'm assigning motives to God that he doesn't possess because he has proven himself again and again and again. They would, I think, tell themselves, repeat and meditate on and think about, this verse before they went into the temple because what they were reminding themselves is even when I don't understand why I can trust who because there are going to be some moments where I don't get it. Why is this happening? Why are you asking me to do this? Why did you set this boundary? How come things aren't working out the way I want it to? And the reason these people would remind themselves, this is who we're dealing with because there are going to be moments when I don't understand why. But I can trust who? I can trust the motives. I can trust where it's coming from. And that reframes the whole conversation. Here's what I want to ask you. Like, what if you repeated and thought about this scripture every time you were about to pray or read your Bible or go to church? How might this change what you prayed for and how you prayed for it and how you read and how it felt and what stood out to you? I think it could potentially change everything because how you view what God says to you is determined by what you say to yourself about God. How you view what God says to you is determined by what you say to yourself about God. So what do you say to yourself about God? And is that even close to accurate? I think some of us, we have sort of through our experiences and incorrect assumptions and hurt feelings and broken moments, we've come to tell ourselves like, oh, I can tell you what God is like. God is demanding and condescending and petty. He has a quick temper. Like his rage is unpredictable. He gets off on making people pay. He hates me for what I did. And I'll tell you one thing, he's never going to let either of us forget it. God seems to let certain people get away with almost anything. But I'll tell you this right now, for some reason, I'm not one of those people, which is why nothing ever works out for me. And for some of us, we have latched onto these statements about who God is. And these sorts of statements have become the foundation of our conversations with God. And I think it's to us that God is saying gently, if you really knew me, you would talk to and treat me differently. except the way God says it feels so different than the way somebody says it angrily trying to skip the line in a restaurant. He says it for the opposite reasons and it has almost the opposite impact. I wonder if you've ever had somebody use this statement not to amp things up, but to calm things down in your life. If you really knew me, you would talk to and treat me differently. Maybe that person came to you in a moment where you were worked up and you were nervous and you were jumping to conclusions and you were frazzled and frustrated. And they sat you down and said, like, I get that these circumstances and that coupled with some of your past experiences, which were brutal. That that together is triggering for you anger and anxiety and fear. but I am not the person who did those things to you. I'm not your ex. I'm not your mom. I'm not your old boss. I'm someone different. And I don't want you to see me for me. Do you know who you're talking to? It's me. What have I done? To lead you to believe that I would make you feel that, that I have those motives, that this thing would ever go to that place. That's not who I am. What do you know for sure about me? Let's evaluate this situation on that. And so, what is it that we know for sure about God? That He is Yahweh, the Lord that he is the God of compassion and mercy, that he's slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, that he lavishes unfailing love to a thousand generations, that he forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That's what we know for sure. And I wonder what would happen to your conversations with and your relationship to God if you regularly reminded yourself of who he really is. Now, maybe that's hard for you to imagine because you know God is like this invisible being. And so let's first let's maybe just do a step like down from that. Like maybe think about this first in the context of a human relationship. Imagine, imagine coming home from work, and before you go in the house, you say to yourself, My wife is an incredible woman with a big heart and she works hard. And I can't imagine that like, you know, there weren't some things in her day that that were really trying for her and it probably zapped a bunch of her energy. And what I do know for sure is this, that she is the girl of my dreams, that she chose me, that my job is to serve her and make her feel loved. And no matter what happens in there, when I go inside tonight, I am gonna make that the filter of every interaction I have with her. I wonder what that might change, not just in your interactions that evening, but in how the entire relationship feels. I think you already know the answer to this based on the reverse experiment that some of us have already run. Because some of us have been doing the opposite. It's not working, right? If you're honest, you're like, yeah, I've sat in my driveway and thought, my wife is a mean woman. With a shriveled heart. And she does next to nothing all day. We probably shouldn't have even gotten married. I mean, I love her, but she drives me crazy. And so help me if she brings up that one thing that she wants me to do, that I already told her I don't have time to do one more time, I'm gonna snap. And based on all these shows I've watched, I know how to get away with murder now. I don't understand why she doesn't get it. Her job is to keep me happy and have sex with me at least four times a week. I deserve some appreciation. Make it so, Jesus, amen and amen. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, that is literally verbatim what I pray (laughs) when I'm about to go in and it isn't working. Now that you mentioned it, it it's not working at all. Isn't it crazy how we can frame a relationship in such a negative way and then still be surprised that every interaction goes badly? Like, I wonder why that didn't go well. Well, what did you tell yourself about them before you walked into the room with them? Because that shapes a lot of the interaction. And again, we don't just do this in our relationship with people, we do it in our relationship with God. And here's the big question I wanna pose to you about your connection with God. What if there are things that God wants to tell you that your heart is desperate to hear, but it can't? Because every conversation you have with him is being filtered through a broken picture of him. And so even though he is telling you things that would save you, change you, encourage you, and uplift you, you don't hear it like that because it's filtering through a skewed image of who he really is. And I would tell you, like, if the picture of God you're working from isn't consistent with how he describes himself and who he's proven himself to be throughout human history and your story, you don't have an accurate view of who you're talking to. And that incorrect context is corrupting the conversation both ways. But the good news is you can change that. You can invite God to reframe for you who he is and what he's like and how much he loves you and cares for you and and how he genuinely acts towards you. And the reason I bring all this up because I think the game changer in your life, in your conversations with God, in your understanding of God, in your interactions with God, and ultimately in the way you view everything and everyone else, I think might be in deciding that it is time to preface your prayers differently to start telling yourself something different about who it is you're talking to before you go to God. I think it might have the power to change everything. When you believe that you are talking to a good God, who loves you and sees you and cares about you and considers your feelings and experiences and is devoted to bringing compassion and mercy in your life, who is faithful and steady, who does whatever it takes to remove pain and suffering from your life, even the parts that you put there, When you start to go into a conversation with God like that, when God says, I'm gonna gonna ask you to do this, and you're like, what? I don't wanna do that. It prevents you from jumping to a conclusion that is not real and preventing you from taking action in the direction of your own salvation. I wonder if it might be time to change the preface of your prayers. So this is what I'm gonna challenge everybody here to do this week. I want you to write down this reference and just record these verses. And I want you to make it your goal this week to just repeat these phrases to yourself, to memorize these phrases. Because when you memorize them, you'll be able to repeat them to yourself. And when your brain is tempted to frame something that God says or does in a way that doesn't reflect him, you will stop yourself in your tracks and be like, that is not how I understand God to be. That's coming from somewhere else. because when we connect with God through the lens of who he really is, we follow him with trust. And he cares for us in ways that we can only see through the correct context. Because your perceptions of God always frame your interactions with God. And what I want to pray into your life is that that framework would change if it's broken. Would you bow your heads across this room as we invite God to give us an accurate view of who he is? God, you know all of our stories. You know us better than anybody knows us, better than we know ourselves. And some of us have been through some really rough circumstances. We've been in some broken relationships. We have inherited biologically and we have been modeled behaviorally some things that have really broken down the life that we're living. Sometimes we look at the things that we do and think and believe and, and, and we buy into it, but we don't like it. It's negative, it's destructive, And there is a general distrust towards you because of what certain people have done on your behalf or in your name that have nothing to do with who you are. And God, I pray today that as we open our hearts to you, as we fix our minds on who you really are, that it would transform the way we feel about you, the way we experience you, the way we hear you. And God, that that would change our willingness to follow after you, to do what you have challenged of us and to become the new creatures you've designed us to be. God, may a correct picture of you change everything about us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless. We'll